This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And I guess after the last two weeks, I should give everybody a, a Mark Health update. I'm starting to feel much better. Thank you to everyone uh, who was praying for me. I appreciate that. The um, As you can hear, my voice isn't quite all the way back, but it's most of the way back. Um, and uh, the COVID-like symptoms have are leaving me. Uh, I've got a little work to do to kind of get my strength back, but uh, I am feeling much, much, much better than I have felt over the last six weeks. So thanks to everybody uh, who prayed for me, and uh, uh, I don't know how I feel about booster shots, Sam. <laughs> not, a, not a fan. <laughs> I would not recommend. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I don't know if there's a tipping point, like at some point you got too much vaccine in your body, and your body's like, all right, fine. <laughs> you know, you want to know what COVID's all about here? You can have COVID. You know, I don't know. Uh, but uh, it's been a wild ride. This has been the weirdest uh, spell I've ever had with all these different symptoms coming in and coming out. It's crazy. So, Yeah, ever since I had COVID, I, like when I catch a normal cold, I, I, this has never been the case. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but now a cold lasts three or four weeks. Like, when did this happen? Is this normal? Like that can be because you're getting older, bro. Sorry to tell you that. But, um, but in, I'm the model of health, Mark. Haven't you seen me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that you know, I mean, and and let's just, I'm just a rotund fellow, but I had, uh, you know, I lost my appetite as part of this for like two and a half weeks. I lost my appetite, and I did manage to lose 14 pounds. So I'll take that because I wasn't eating. A uh, lousy reason for it, but uh, you know you take every every bit you can get. That's not a good reason to take the booster. Not a good reason to take the booster. Would <laughs> would not recommend as a weight loss product. No, uh, you know that's uh, it would not indeed. So, yeah, it's uh, as I you know as I've gotten older, uh, every cold I have uh, gotten of late has gone into my sinuses and has has only left by the force of steroids and antibiotics. So uh, welcome, welcome to your elder years. All right, yeah, this is, this is exciting. It's good to know, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing to look forward to. So, so we're still continuing in our series um, uh, from the Gospel of Mark on the identity of Jesus, and this week comes to Mark chapter five, and Mark chapter five is really an interesting chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, it has one of the most unusual stories in it that I think you'll find just anywhere in Scripture. Um, it has a story of a man who is possessed by a lot of demons. So uh, and we now at the end of chapter 4, we had just seen Jesus showing his power over the winds and the wave and his power over nature and the storm. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, they uh, verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, so the boat trip concluded successfully, to the country of the Gerasenes. Gerasenes? Is that it? Gerasenes? Garrisons is Garrisons? the way I said it. Okay, well, we'll go with Garrisons then. Uh, it's kind of like kerosene, but with a G. We'll go with the Garrisons. To the country of the Garrisons. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat 
Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. You know, it's interesting to me there, too, because, you know, the the tombs were a place of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this guy who had been possessed by this mob, I don't have a better word for it, of demons, <laughs> was living amongst the dead. He was like, mm-hmm. he's basically saying, I'm the living dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he feels comfortable among the tombs. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's where he kicks up his feet. That's where he feels at home. As all these demons feel at home around death, that's their mission. That's what they want. Um, and and so he lives among the tombs. Yeah. Well, and you remember we read uh, a couple chapters ago when they were accusing Jesus of doing what he did by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus, you know, spoke back and said, "Hey, how can Satan?" You know, go against Satan. And at the end of that little bit there, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house unless they bind the strong man first. So you have this depiction of the demonic forces as being strong. Um, And that's what you see here also. Uh, Mm -hmm. It says, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So it's like Hulk smash kind of thing, just ripping <laughs> chains apart, um, which has to be scary. Um, but it also kind of makes a point, which is, you know, demons are – we're talking about a spiritual thing here. These are, these are spiritual beings that have invaded a, a human body, but they have imparted to him a supernatural strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because – I know there's some people out there who uh, fancy themselves exorcists, uh, not you know more to the charismatic side of our Christian faith than not. But uh, you know, when I was in Bible college, there used to have we had people that were kind of had odd behaviors, and other people would claim that there was something, there was a demon going on, and so they're going to go. They're going to take them in a room and they're going to keep them and pray for them all night until the demon leaves and that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, I've never really felt called <laughs> to go mano y mano with a demon. I'm not sure that would be something I'd recommend you try. Um, if somebody is is genuinely afflicted by a demon, uh, that can be dangerous and unpredictable, and uh, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be approached lightly. It, totally. You know, one of the things and, – and, and for those that are out there who go, wait a minute, they, they really believe this stuff happens. Of all the miracles that Jesus does in his lifetime and of all the miracles that the apostles do in their lifetime, the most often cited is casting out demons. Um, so this is something that the New Testament, the Bible, very, very clearly says was, was an issue. You know, everywhere that Jesus goes, everywhere his apostles go because they're commissioned – and given authority to cast out demons, and apparently, this was this was a major issue that right. with people who were being tormented and were open to that. Um, and and like you know, the, like I thought it was brilliant. You point out how the you know the the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of of being basically being empowered by Beelzebub or by by Satan. And I love that, you know, nobody – this is basically saying there's nobody that can subdue the strong man. There's nobody that could overpower uh, Satan. 
until you come to this story, Jesus is going to be the first one who triumphs. So right. like like you were pointing out before we started recording, he subdues the strong man in right. the story, and it's only him. It's only him that has the power to do that. So right. Sam or Mark going up to to run a deliverance ministry and you know come out in the name of Sam because I'm strong and like get out of here. I, I want nothing to do with that scene. Yeah, you know it's only Christ who can do that. And now theologically speaking, I would have to say that the good news is that we have the best vaccine on the planet against demon possession, mm-hmm. which is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, because the Scripture is also quite clear. That those of us who are filled with God's Spirit, we are Christians, we're believers, we have the Spirit living within us, we cannot be demon-possessed. The Spirit can't be driven out by a demon. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, 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 I kind of look at that as if I think something's wrong with me, I can at least cross demon possession off the list. <laughs> you know? That's true. Uh, and that's, that's a comfort, you yeah, know. It is. So uh, we're told here that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That's another interesting thing because the one thing that we know about demons is that they are, you know, like you said, death is their natural element. And they're trying to always destroy what God has created. They mm-hmm. want to destroy people because people are made in the image of God. So they're having this guy disfigure himself. By cutting himself with stones, he's cutting his skin to shreds, you know. They're trying to get him to destroy the image of God that's on him. Mm-hmm. And everything about this, you know, he's he's unclothed, we'll find out. You know, he's naked. He's, he's making – he's destroying this guy's reputation. He's cutting his skin. Uh, these guys, I mean, the demonic realm, they really do operate like parasites. They get inside of a host and they suck the life. Out of them, they will destroy right. every essence of life about a person, um, and that's what you see here. This guy is literally being destroyed from the inside out by these this demonic possession. Yeah. So verse six says, "And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and notice this, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me?'" Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So this guy, you know, this guy was, he fell at Jesus' feet. The strong man was bound and knocked <laughs> to the ground by the mere presence of Jesus. Yeah, it's a, one of the things that's fascinating to me when you go through the Gospels, it's humanity that's always questioning Jesus' power. You know, they're like, show us a sign. Should we believe in you? You know, they're always, you know, we're not sure that we're going to give you our loyalty because we're not sure you are who you say you are. But you always find Satan. For example, in the temptations of Jesus, Satan comes and says, okay, if you're the son of God, tell the tell the stones to become bread. He doesn't doubt that he has the power to turn the stones to bread. He doesn't doubt that he has the ability to charge the angels to catch him if he jumps off right. the temple. Mm-hmm. He doesn't doubt any of Jesus's power. The 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 fallen angels, which is what demons are, Satan himself is a fallen angel. They know the power of the Son of God, and so when these demons see it, it's not like they're having an intellectual thing where they like, oh, you know, we should do. They know the power of the Most High, and so they they don't go. Well, I wonder if we can. I wonder if we'll be able to withstand him. Like they come and say, oh my gosh, have you come to torment us? They they they're well aware of who he is. Right. Satan is well aware 
of the power of Christ, and they don't doubt it. They know his power. And I always found it fascinating and sad that demons acknowledge his power and what he can do far more than his own people sometimes. So it's America's favorite new game show, Are You Smarter Than a Demon? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's what, is it James who says, you know, you do well to believe even the demons believe and tremble? And tremble? Yeah. You know, w- w- do we tremble? Like, I mean, it's like they have an understanding of who God is almost better than, or well, sure, better than most people do. Yeah. So, uh, verse 8, for he was saying to him, that would be Jesus, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So, Jesus commands the demons to come out, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Um, So, that's an interesting thing also, because Mm -hmm. it was not just one demon that was in this guy. It was lots of them. We're going to see in a minute that it was probably a couple thousand uh, demons mm-hmm. that were in this guy. Uh, so that's a kind of yeah. discouraging thing to know, that, that they could do something like that. Yeah, Roman Legion typically is somewhere between three and 6,000. So this is, this, is a large, this is a massive number of demons. Yeah. And you were asking, like, why this guy? Why, why would, you know, let's say it's 3,000 or 2,000. Like, how do they get together and say, yeah, let's all jump together in this guy? Yeah. He's like... You know, spread it around. Why are they all doing that? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I suspect that, you know, he's he's fertile ground for them, you know, that they're, they feel very safe and fortified yeah. in this guy. Well, and again, you know, we just need to recognize that this was a world into which the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, in terms of the abilities of demons to, to attack people or influence people, uh, it was more wide open than today when, thankfully, you know, we have the comforter who protects us from these things. So um, Jesus asked him his name. He said his name was Legion, for we are many. And he, Legion, then begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. You know, there's, first of all, you know, demons possessing animals as well. That's interesting. Uh, you know, the, just one of these stories that gives you a little insight into demonic possession. It wasn't just the man. They were also able to enter into the pigs. Mm-hmm. But when they were in the pigs, Sam, they did the same thing. They killed the pigs. Yeah. It's like when, a, the, you know, the demon has one goal, which is death. Yeah. They are, they are harbingers of death. They, they want to destroy whatever it is. And, and, and the fact that they're, they ask Jesus, can we go into the pigs? It just goes to show, like, they are parasitic creatures. You know, they're, they're looking for a host to devour and destroy. You know, when Jesus describes Satan, that's what he says. He's constantly roaming to and fro looking for whom he may devour. And that's, that's what they do. They are looking to devour and and yeah. like you said as soon as they go in the pigs they bring the pigs destruction. Yeah. 
I've been to this hill, by the way, where yeah. they believe this happened. Mm-hmm. When we went to Israel, um, a number of us, I was actually on this trip with Tom and, and Will and Dr. Gage, and we went to this location, and it's a pretty, you know, you're on a road that's on kind of a steep hill, and you can see, like, you could see how the pigs would rush down, and I mean, it's almost like gravity momentum just takes them. There would be no, for a pig... There, there would be no turning back, and they wouldn't have been able to come back out of the water. They would, they absolutely would have drowned. And it's, it's bizarre to be in this place because it's kind of craggy and it looks a little desolate, and you know, it's it's probably too steep to to dwell right near the coast. Um, but you can totally imagine with your mind's eye seeing this happen. Hmm. Hmm. When it says that at the very beginning of the story, when it says that Jesus has come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He, he's actually at a place called the Decapolis. And so this is 10 cities. And the cities were Greek. They were founded by the Greeks. They're all Gentiles. And that explains why they have, you know, massive herds of pigs, right? You know, Jews, because of kosher law, wouldn't have been raising pigs. So he's in a, a Gentile territory. But one of the things that's fascinating is you, you see demon possession and all the places that Jesus goes, one of the things that they're consistently doing is casting out demons. Um, and I think we make light of that. Like there's, there's some evangelicals today who make too much of demon possession. You know, there's a demon under every rock and, you know, it's, it's some kind of spirit that's leading to everything. And, and that's actually can be spiritually abusive. Um, you know, I talked with a woman a couple of weeks ago, and she told me that a counselor had told her um, that she might be possessed um, or at, at minimum was being tormented by evil spirits. And this woman could not shake that. Like it was, it was haunting her so badly that she was, you know, essentially debilitated. She couldn't do anything. She was living in constant fear and wondering if God had forsaken her. And and at the end of the conversation, this is somebody who doesn't even go to our church, by the way, but at the, by the end of our conversation and just talking about the promises that are given to a believer like you have repeatedly mentioned, you know, that the Spirit dwells in you, that God is jealous of you. He will not share the temple of your heart with defiled demons. Like, And we just talked about God's love and the assurance that he has and and by the end of the conversation, you know, this woman was so grateful and she seemed to be free of all that fear. And I think we can we can make too much of it. But then also in our secular culture, there's a lot of people who say, you, you believe that? Like you believe there's demons? And I absolutely do. And I wanted to just spot, like have you ever had an encounter where you thought this could be legit possession? Uh, not me personally, no. Okay. That's not, not something that I've had to face. I had one encounter where I was with a buddy and we were in a bar and we were watching a, a Steelers game way back in the day. And it was brand, I was in seminary, going to seminary with this guy, and, and a man came into the bar and he was sobbing. And he sat down next to me, which was a little uncomfortable, you know, just having this guy sob next to me. And so we started talking and I found out that he had he had just left his wife and, you know, he was telling me all these things that he felt bad about, you know, and leaving his wife and kids. So anyway, he was already – he'd already been drinking, obviously, by the time he got to this bar. But we started talking about the gospel and believe it or not, like he was open to it. We ended up going outside of, of this bar and, you know, he wanted to accept Christ. I told him, I said, you need to call your wife. And eventually it was pretty wild, his wife and – 
came down to the bar with kids in the back seat. He gave her a big hug. They re- reconciled as much as he could at that point, you know, being a little intoxicated. But it was pretty wild, like, you know, a pretty wild sharing of the gospel. And I went back into this bar, and it had a rectangular bar in the middle. And so you're looking to the other sides, and the TVs were on the other side, and somebody's mm-hmm. looking at a TV over my head as well. And I, this guy is looking at me as I'm looking over his, over his head at the TV. I can just tell he's staring a hole through me. And I just keep watching. And eventually it gets so uncomfortable that I look down at him, and I was like, you know, can I help you? And he, Mark, he his face contorted, and he screamed, you know, I know what you're doing. Like, and the bartender flipped out. His torso was on top of the bar. Everybody in that place was like, what in the world is going on? And I was so freaked out by that because the only thing that I'd been doing was talking about Jesus. And it was this guy was so repelled at this hmm. that I looked at Kendall and I was like, I am getting out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and Kendall stayed there wanting to talk to him about Jesus. And I was like, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. I'm out of here. But I've, you know, there was just this palpable sense of evil that emanated out of him and the way that his face contorted. I'll never forget it. And just how much anger there was over, over this. And I thought, man, if ever I've come across somebody who is, is really, really vitriolic against Jesus or demon-possessed, man, that guy, I've, I just – it sent shockwaves through me. Mm. And and I remember listening to somebody talk about, you know, how we mock the idea of demon possession. And it was Tim Keller, and he was saying, you know, if you go back to the most evil thing that has happened in the last hundred years, most people would say it's the Holocaust. And he says, you know, what's what's really fascinating about the Holocaust is it takes place in a nation – that is known to be at like the pinnacle of society. You know, Germany had the best engineers. They were coming off of, you know, some of the most renowned philosophers like Nietzsche and, you know, they had some of the best music and operas and classical music. They were like cutting edge before World War One. They were on the, the cusp of the leading societies of the day. And out of that, out of the enlightenment of man and the best that we had to offer comes the Holocaust. And he was asking, do you, you know, is that just the depravity of man or is there some kind of mass delusion that can, that can sweep over people that are not redeemed to drive them to do some of the, the most unimaginable things? And everybody, you know, almost a century later is looking back at the Holocaust and we kind of scratch our heads and think, how in the world could everybody just watch that? You know, how in the world could you just watch six million people sent to gas chambers, you know, in Russia, how how in the world could Stalin watch as millions of Ukrainians starve to death and just shrug and all the people just kind of tolerate it? And he was like, there, there has to be. I mean, humanity is already depraved. We already have our problems. But when you see massive movements of evil like that, to deny that there's some kind of weird spiritual component that drives humanity to the worst parts of ourselves – you know, I I think we're naive to to neglect that. Just as there's common grace that we talked about last week, where you know ordinary people who are not redeemed do really wonderful things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a spiritual element that drives ordinary people to do unbelievably wicked and evil things. There's a real evil out there, 
and I think it's na- I think it's actually naive to deny it. Yeah, but our culture would would scoff at the idea. Yeah, I have. I mean, I've wondered that about you know, some of these stories where people do terrible things, especially to children or innocent people, and I have I have thought to myself. That's that's demonic. I mean, that's mm-hmm. right out of hell. That's pit of hell kind of thing. And uh, so, I don't doubt that there is still uh, demon activity in our world today. I don't think that it's as widespread as it was in the time of Jesus. But um, I think that it. I, I definitely think that it happens. The guys that go looking for it are the ones mm-hmm. I don't quite understand. Um, it's like they they saw the Exorcist one too many times or something. I don't know. They, they, it's like they go around with this. They're gonna have. They're gonna cast out the demons, and I'm like, you know, um, just not my idea of a fun Saturday night. I'm not gonna go looking for demons. I don't know. Yeah, it's dangerous. It is. Um, so uh, this crowd here that had come out to see what was going on. By the time they get here, verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind <laughs> and they were afraid now i'll ask you who do you think they were afraid of i i think they're afraid of jesus i do too <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i I, yeah. I think you know how in the nobody could bind this guy how many years has he been there He's been utterly tormented. Nobody can make any progress. They've thrown the best people, the strongest people at this guy. Sure. Nothing works. And then here comes Jesus. And, you know, I don't know if word of how it played out, but, you know, he, this thing, you know, all this legion and all that power just succumbed to this guy. Like, yeah. who is he? Yeah. I think it's the same, like the way that the, the guys, the disciples in the boat freak out you know, yes. when the storm goes calm and they were even more afraid when everything went calm. I think that's the same idea, like we're, we are in the presence of God and we're not sure what to make of this. Yeah. But I'm more afraid of what he can do to me than what the demon-possessed man could. Right. Yeah. Well, right, that's, uh, that's what Jesus said, right? Don't fear the one that has the power to destroy the body. Fear the one that has the power to destroy the soul. That's right. Yeah. Um, so uh, it says, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, the crowd, began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And I've heard different sermons on this passage over the years because it gets preached on all the time. And I've heard some pastors say, you know, that it was because Jesus had killed 2,000 other pigs that they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, they thought he was going to be I've just, heard that. he's going to be disastrous to the economy kind of thing. Um, but I think it goes back to what it says, and they were afraid. I think they begged Jesus to leave their region because they didn't know what else this guy might be capable of, and mm-hmm. they didn't want him around. Yeah, there's also a fear that, you know, if he is who we think he is, then he has the absolute right to ask us to do anything. Right. And we can't measure up. It's like, you know, you go back to the very beginning when he called Peter, you know, he just did this amazing thing for him. He gave him a huge catch of fish, which is exactly what Peter wants. And that's all good and fine until Peter thinks, oh my goodness, God is in my boat, you know? Mm-hmm. And what's his response? Yeah, depart from depart me. Depart from me. Yeah. 
Why? Because I'm a sinful man, and I know you're going to demand better from me, and I don't want to give it. I don't think I'm capable of giving it. Please go away. You're a reminder of all of my insufficiencies and everything else, and so please leave. Please leave. Um, and I think that's that's the response of man. It's like, you know, everybody wants all the benefits of Christianity, but when Jesus comes and says, hey, I want your whole life, and I want even the things that you're unwilling to give up, it's like, okay, turn the channel. I, I don't want to hear it anymore. Go away now. I, I, I don't want to be accountable to you. I don't want to admit that there's something greater than myself and the throne of my life. Go away. And I think I think that plays into part of the fear. Yeah. You know, go away. Yeah. I I won't measure up. I can't measure up. So I don't want to try. Go away. Hmm. Verse 18, uh, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Obviously, this guy wants to stick close to Jesus because those <laughs> demons might come back. Um, and that was apparently something hmm. demons did as they came back to uh, to once again to in, uh, infect or possess people that had been previously possessed. Um, and he didn't want that. So he was asking if he could be with Jesus. Uh, verse 19, and he did not permit him. Jesus didn't let him come with him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he hmm. went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Um, and I do think that that uh, implicit in that is that Jesus wasn't going to let this guy get possessed again. Mm-hmm. You know. But what, you know, I love, I just dawned on me, when Jesus tells them what to do, you know, here's all these people who are really terrified of Jesus and say, tell them to go away, you know, go away, we don't want you here. Jesus' message, he says, hey, I want you to stay here, you're not going to come with me, but your mission is to go to all those people who are afraid of me, who want me to leave, and I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you. I want you to tell them how kind I am. I want you to tell them how I had mercy on you so that, you know, they recognize who I am. But it doesn't keep them from coming. I want them to know I'm kind. And it's like Jesus even then is thinking about the people who are rejecting him, in a sense, and telling him to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just his nature is so good. I, I love that. Yeah. And everyone marveled. So there's going to be people from that region who we'll find in heaven. And this whole story, by the way, this is my, my favorite part about this story um, when we were riding around on the road right through this region uh, on the Sea of Galilee a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Gage was telling us that when Jesus does a miracle to heal somebody, almost always you'll find that whatever he heals them of, in some way or another, he's going to take upon himself when he goes through the passion narrative. So, for instance, you know, if he heals a blind man – when he's going through his passion narrative, he's blindfolded and spat upon and mocked. And it's like, you know, he takes that curse upon himself. But when we look at this story, if, if I were to, to summarize the, the condition of this man when we find him, he's naked, right? He's cut up, so his body would have looked absolutely shredded. He's possessed by an evil that's not of his own soul, Right, So it's an evil from outside of him that saturates him. This guy's the demons inside of him are awaiting the wrath of God. All of, and he's on the hills and in the tombs and all of it. And all of that is to say, you know, later on when we go forward in the gospel, you know, Jesus is going to be on a hill. 
mm-hmm. and he's going to be naked, and he, his body is going to be absolutely shredded just like this man's would have been. He is going to be saturated with an evil that is not of his own soul. My evil and your evil, you know, he become he takes on our sin. He gets pummeled with the wrath of God. But the thing that's even more stunning than that is in this story, Jesus is going to impute, like he takes he takes the the demons out of this man and he throws the evil, he imputes the evil into these pigs, and then the pigs rush down and they all perish in the sea. And we've talked about this a million times. What is the sea always symbolic of? Death. Death and judgment. And so mm-hmm. the evil is thrown into the substitute mm-hmm. and the substitute is plunging into death. And Jesus is, when he goes to the passion, it's like he takes the place of this guy. He's shredded. He's naked. He's ashamed. He's on the hill. He's going to the tomb. He has some evil outside of himself that's imposed on him, except he doesn't have the substitute. He Mm. is going to be the one who will plunge into death and into the depths of hell to defeat these demons, to defeat all evil once and for all time. He is the great victor in the story. And so, you know, and why does he do that? So that we can be clothed and in our right mind and restored. Um, so, in, in some sense, like, it makes me wonder when Jesus comes across these stories and then when he goes to the passion, like, is he thinking about this demoniac when, when he's suffering all these things, you know, because he's purchasing him when he goes to the cross. This guy – his, the mercy that he receives, the fact that he's going to be in heaven someday with us, was made possible because Jesus took his place. He looked at all of his curses and said, no, 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 those are mine. I'm taking them yeah. so that you can have freedom. Yeah. Hmm. I like that. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So uh, now we come to verse 21. And it says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, Jesus spent a lot of time in boats. <laughs> Did you notice that? Pinballing across the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, yeah. a lot of time in boats. Um, so when he had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You know, hmm. um, for a ruler of the synagogue to do that, to come out and throw himself at Jesus' feet, two th- I mean, the two things that occur to me immediately, Sam, is that number one, this guy was really seriously at the end of his rope. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he'd already done everything that their medical science at that time knew to do. And he was watching his daughter die, and it was it was tearing him apart. But the other thing is that for him to come and do that in front of Jesus, he had to believe that Jesus truly had the power to help his daughter. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that sometimes, especially with people who um, have a lot to lose, you know, by their declarations of faith and so forth. It is those moments of great desperation that force them to turn to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it, you know, just a few times where somebody who's kind of got it all, 
tripping through life, um, never giving God two thoughts. And then they come to that situation they can't handle. Something's going on in their world. They just can't deal with it. Um, and at that point, they find themselves falling at the feet of the Lord. It's not unusual for powerful people to be brought to God under circumstances like that. Mm-hmm. Which means it's a mercy in a very bizarre way. Like nobody would say, you know, when I look back at the at the crises that hit my life, you know, where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure. Everything's unstable. All my ground is sinking sand, and I'm not sure where to go. Right. Like the and the Lord started wrecking all the things that were precious to me and all my idols in life. And at the moment, if you'd have told me this was God's kindness to me, I would have. I would have. I, I would have been angry, actually. Um, but in retrospect, I can see that that is exactly what it took for me to come to him. Hmm. And so when, when you see Jairus coming before him with something that dire, you know, my daughter, my little daughter is close to death. You know, this is in a bizarre way and God's sovereignty, actually a mercy that draws Jairus near to himself and this little girl for, in an eternal sense. Um, and the other thing is – you see, if he's one of the rulers of the synagogue, you know, the the last stories that we've read about Jesus in the synagogue, the people who are in authority are not big fans. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, when he heals the man with the withered hand and all that, you know, it's, it says that they left there and were starting to scheme as to how they would destroy him and put him to death. So anybody who's a friend of Jesus becomes a an enemy of the people who are in authority. And so when Jairus makes the decision that as the ruler of the synagogue, he is going to publicly say, you know what? I believe this man is of, is of God and he's my only hope to save my daughter. And he cashes in his reputation potentially. He's cashing in his relationships with other people and power in, in that synagogue. Everything is on the table. And he's like, I don't care. This is my girl. I will do whatever. Um, and so this is a big moment of faith. He's put a lot on the table to get to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's true. And Jesus, for his part, uh, verse 24, it says, and he went with him. So Jesus went with Jairus to see his daughter. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And then this interesting thing happens. It's like this, it's almost like a parenthetical thing. It's like we got a beginning and we're going to have an end. But meanwhile, <laughs> there's this thing in the middle. Verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So some kind of problem with her reproductive organs and, and mm-hmm. you know, female problems, as would be said, um, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. I, you know, when I look at that, I, I'm thinking to myself, well, first of all, if she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, that also means, Sam, that she's barren. Mm-hmm. She's not had any children, uh, mm-hmm. which, as we know in that culture, for a woman not to have children, everybody around was like, so, what have you done to offend God? Why does mm-hmm. God not give you children? So that would be a, a – you know, she was somebody who had already kind of suffered some slings and arrows. Mm-hmm. And then, you know – she had been taken advantage of, right? She'd spent all that she had mm-hmm. with the physicians of the day, and their snake oil didn't do anything for her. Um, she's a pretty sympathetic character to me. She's somebody, mm-hmm. pretty who, much, yeah, who has really been taken advantage of here. 
Yeah, and one of the other things, the the, the Greek word for, for woman is gune there, and it's where we get the, the word gynecologist. But one of the things that that word communicates in the Greek is that she's of marrying age. And so there's a lot of people who speculate, and you can't be sure, but I think they speculate probably correctly that she was also probably married. And one of the things that was true in ancient cultures, not just Jewish culture, though it was part of the law, but in most ancient cultures is if you had somebody who was bleeding, they were to be put outside of the community because of bloodborne pathogens and diseases and things like that, even when a woman was going through menstruation. During the time of her menstruation and for a period afterwards, she would have to separate herself um, from the community just for the sake of, of health and safety. This woman has not only lost her ability to have children, so she's barren, which is tragic, like tremendously tragic at any point, but it becomes a, a point of shame in the ancient world, like you said. But there's a healthy chance that she's probably lost her husband. You know, yeah. first in the first century, you would just it would have been easy to just abandon this woman. And now she's got an entire culture that she's not allowed to have community with. She's not allowed to be around people for twelve years. Mm. You know, she can't she can't go to synagogue. She can't go to the marketplace. She can't be around any people, at least she's not supposed to. Um so this woman has had every conceivable relationship destroyed because of this condition and right. she's so desperate like you said she's she's put herself in the hands of all these different physicians who've only made the problem worse everywhere she goes uh, you want to talk about a desperate situation this woman i love this woman yeah <laughs> she's just just for the the weight of her suffering right. verse 27 it says that she had heard the reports about jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. That's how confident she was in who Jesus was. Um, that's great faith, you know? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's scandalous faith because, as again, she's bleeding, which means she's unclean, which means anything she touches is unclean. And here you have the leader of the synagogue who's taking this man who's conceived to be a miraculous prophet, potentially the Messiah, and he's needed to go rescue the daughter of the synagogue ruler. Mm -hmm. And here you have this woman who's unclean who risks making this miracle worker unclean by coming near him and touching him. And so it would have been tremendously dangerous for her like she's risking a lot when she gets into the crowd i i you know i don't doubt that people are going what is she doing here why is she here why is she here um and she's you know having to work her way through the crowd just to get close enough to him and she reaches down and grabs the the hem of his outer garment and that's that's no small detail like and this this gets back to like in the you know in the first story with the pigs jesus is taking evil and he's taking the evil from the demoniac and he's casting it into the pigs. And in this story, you see it working the opposite way. You know, here you have somebody who's unclean, who's going to Jesus, and he's going to impute his health to her. But when she grabs the hem of his garment, and Luke 8, the word there can be translated tassels. So in the same story, she's grabbing like where the tassels of his garment would be. And in Numbers 15, we're told that Jewish men are commanded to wear an outer garment that has four tassels at the bottom, at the seam, at the hem of their garment. And these tassels, when you read Numbers 15, it says that they were to wear 
because it was to be a reminder that they were to obey the whole law of God, that they were that they were to to always keep the laws of God, the laws of Torah in front of them, and that they were to obey. It was their reminder when they saw them, I am to be obedient to God. This my righteousness, I owe God a righteous life. And there's only one human being who's ever worn that outfit who wore it with integrity. <laughs> yeah. You know, everyone else has violated all those laws, but here's one man, one man who never sinned. He's an absolutely sinless man who can wear that garment with integrity and the hem of his garment and these tassels that hang. He has faithfully kept the law of God. And so when she comes and she lays hold, I mean, why not his shoulder? Why not his elbow? You know, whatever. She's grabbing the hem of his garment. That's not accidental. It's it's like she's saying, I want to grab hold of your righteousness. Hmm. And what happens at that moment is really stunning. Like Jesus's reaction, you get the sense that what he's saying is uh, something just imputed from me to someone else. Right. Yeah, that's a matter of fact, it is sort of interesting here. Um, verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling <laughs> and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really interesting thing. A couple of couple of things, I, you know, questions I have. You know, Jesus was fully God. Jesus was also fully man. Mm-hmm. Many times, Jesus shows that he is, that he has knowledge that would not be something that a man could know. He mm-hmm. could perceive what he what he needed to perceive. But then there's times like this where it makes it sound like this kind of took him by surprise. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like he's not knowing everything all the time. He knows anything he needs to know, but he's not walking around with his full omniscience kicked in all the time. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that this is just like he's doing it all for show? Like he knew he knew exactly what was going on or or was this a kind of a surprise to him? I, you know, I think that well, the text doesn't say so. Anything I say is going to be speculation. Sure, but I think what Jesus is doing is exactly what she needed him to do. You know, I think she needed to wrestle with the fact that, you know, to have a relationship with him, she would have to say it was me, and here's my story, and I came to you, and I was bleeding, and all of this, and now I'm well. Whereas if she'd have just touched him and gotten, you know, the blessing and run away, you know, she wouldn't have had the relationship. Mm-hmm. But when he's looking, she's got to wrestle. Is the shame worth it? Is is going public worth it? You know, to, to, to have a relationship with him. And so internally, at that moment, she's going, am I willing to endure the shame and out myself and reveal who I really am to this man so that I can – have a relationship with him, and she chooses him. And I think he did that so that her faith would be more precious and more genuine when she's got to come. I mean, just imagine how shameful that would be when she comes trembling, you know, like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, everyone is around me. You can barely make room, and now I have to come and tell him that I'm a bleeding woman and what had happened to me. And you can imagine her trembling for fear of the crowd. 
And then Jesus, in front of this crowd that has shunned her for 12 years, this this prophet that everyone is following, that everyone wants a piece of, looks at this woman who's been shunned, and the first word he says to her is daughter. Like, how good is he? You know, Mm -hmm. you just imagine she's terrified, she's afraid, and his first word is just absolute affirmation. Like, stop fearing. You're my daughter. Yeah. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so I think, yeah, I think he knew. Maybe not, but I think he knew. But I think he looks around to say, all right, is she going is she, is she to own this? Yeah. Is she going to come to me even though it might cost her something? Yeah. And it says that she came in fear and trembling. You know, And that was something else we were talking about earlier is this idea that the people who saw the true power of Jesus – you know, it was it was an awe inspiring thing. You know, they they mm-hmm. they trembled a little bit um, at seeing you know what what Jesus was capable of, um, and I think that you know I think that she had the right attitude. You know, and when she says it came in fear and trembling, I don't think it means that she was like terrified of Jesus. Um, when they talk about fear here in the Bible, you know, fear the Lord, that kind of thing, it talks about a sort of reverential awe. That is so extreme. Like you're, you're in such awe mm-hmm. that you realize how great he is and how small you are that the only word that fits it is fear. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it was fear because she hadn't met him before, didn't know, she just heard all these things and she's wondering, is it true? He puts those fears to rest like immediately. That's, that's his nature. Like draw near to me, daughter, right. you know, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to punish you. You haven't you haven't diminished me, obviously, with your, you know, uncleanness. He's just it's entirely one way. Yeah. His, you know, just like the first story imputes, you know, he imputes the wickedness from the the man to the pigs, and this one, he's imputing his righteousness to her, right. which which heals her and cleanses her. And that's the you know in the gospel you have both of those elements. Right, our wickedness is imputed mm-hmm. to Jesus. And his righteousness is imputed to us. And one of the other gospels in the Gospel of Luke, he actually stops and when he says, Who touches me? He he adds a comment that's I felt power go out from me. So like Jesus is actually saying, I felt something leave me. Right. Well so, that, Mark says that too, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Mm-hmm. He just didn't yeah. say it out loud. Well, I'm looking Mark. for red letters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there, he certainly did know that, you know, and, and as we're supposed to be going through, uh, looking for what Mark is telling us about Jesus, this chapter started off by telling us that Jesus is the God who has authority over all the spiritual realm. He's the God who binds the strong man. He's the God who can command the demons with a word to come out of someone. And to go into a bunch of pigs, um, you know, he's the one that has control of the spiritual realm, including the demonic. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen that Jesus is the God who is so virtuous that his presence and just touching him was enough to cure her of her disease. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which also goes back to what you were mentioning. You know how the that what was the the main mission of the demons is what. It's death. Sure, to, right. to, to tear down life. 
well, this woman bleeding for 12 years, like you mentioned, this was a barrenness. She was infertile because of this. And what does Jesus do? Just as he gets rid of the demons that were you know, tearing down life, he gets rid of this menstruating, this bleeding that was preventing her mm-hmm. from bringing forth life. Right. It's, this, it's his nature. He brings life wherever he goes. Right. Now we're going to see that rise to the ultimate level because this delay – where he had stopped to talk to this woman, was just long enough for something to happen. In verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. I mean, my mind is immediately goes to the story of Lazarus, where... Uh, the, they were telling him, you know, Lazarus is sick. And then they're telling him, you know, Jesus kind of hangs around for a couple days. And now it's like, you know, Lazarus has died. And Jesus is like, no, no, he's just sleeping. <laughs> um, you know, similar parallels in these stories here. And the outcome is the same. With the story of Lazarus, he, he deliberately waits two days. Just like in this story, he deliberately stopped and paid attention to this poor, desperate woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years rather than racing to Jairus's daughter. Right. And you have no doubt, like if Jairus is there, he's like, why did you have to stop? Like you, you got to imagine Jairus's temptation would be like, if you had just hurried, you know, if you had just raced and, you know, back in Lazarus's story, they have the same reaction. You know, if you'd have hurried to get here, you could have prevented this. But Jesus tells them in the story of Lazarus, all this was allowed so that the glory of God would shine through this right. to many more people. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, back to that, like there's, there's a lot of times where it's hard to understand why God allows things that are very clearly painful, that are very clearly hard. And the answer is he is ultimately going to use those things for his glory and for your good, even though you can't understand it. That right. woman who bled for 12 years, I'm sure if you came to her and said, all oh, this is for a purpose, she'd have been like, oh, platitudes, I just want healing. Yeah. But at the end of this, when Jesus comes and heals her and the crowd sees it and people come to faith and there will be people in heaven forever because of that story and her children that come along and all of that like i bet she wouldn't trade it for anything in the world on the backside of it mm-hmm. but that's how god works we don't always know why he's doing things but we trust that he's good and he's working for his glory so he uh he breaks the crowd down to just his three most loyal guys here his real inner circle verse 37 he says and he allowed no one to follow him except peter and james and john the brother of james so I'm going to get my three, you know, really the ones I'm really closest to, mm-hmm. and we're going to go and we're going to see this, uh, see Jairus's daughter. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, "Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." Same thing he said about Lazarus. And they laughed at him. Hmm. <laughs> you imagine that. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, so his three closest disciples, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. (laughs) And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Uh, Several questions I have when I read this section. I mean, obviously, you and I know that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the key tenets of the Christian faith is that death for the Christian is not death. It's like we, mm-hmm. we've, we've, just, we've just fallen asleep and we're waiting for the voice of our God to call us to wakefulness again. You know, we're waiting for that resurrection mm-hmm. when we'll wake up, you know, so to speak, from the sleep that we're in. Um, death is not the end. It's just – it literally is just sleeping for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's certainly here, but then he says, don't tell anyone about this. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think Jesus didn't want them to tell anyone? You know, he does this sometimes, like when, with, with the, the demoniac, when, when he's healed, he says, go back into the city and I want you to tell everybody yeah, about my mercy yeah. and kindness. Go spread the word. Yeah. Um, but in this case, there, it seems to be when there are two different things. When Jesus does the transfiguration, for example, and he shows them you know, the glory that he has, he says, don't tell anyone about it until after my death and resurrection. Um, in this case, he says, you know, don't tell anybody about me raising you from the dead. When, when he raises Lazarus, he allows the word to go around and everybody wants to kill him, Right. But I think my my explanation for this, and you know, again, this is my opinion, is that Jesus does not want word to go out about his glory or about his power to bring about the resurrection until people understand what the cost was first. Mm. So you understand that suffering comes before glory. You know that the Christian must carry his cross to receive the crown. And so, had people gone around and been like, oh my goodness, the glory, and oh my goodness, he raises the dead, um, without understanding the cost of it. That's just my take. You know, it's, I think he wants them to understand what, what resurrection cost, mm. hmm. the hope of resurrection. You know, some of the other times that he's told people not to say anything, for example, uh, the leper that he healed earlier in, in the Gospel of Mark here. He told him, go to, go into town and, and make your offering to the priest and, but don't say anything else. And of course he blabbed it to everybody. Um, you know, I kind of, I find myself wondering whether Jairus and his wife, did they heed him and keep quiet? Or did they go outside and say, look what this man has done? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, it doesn't, yeah, either it way, doesn't tell us. Jairus's daughter's walking around all of a sudden. You know, yeah. the the crowd that's pressing in when they hear, "Hey, don't bother anymore. She's dead." You know, then all of a sudden, Jairus's daughter's running around the town. It's like, wait, what? What? What happened? <laughs> you know, I, I think word is going to get around. Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure why he says that. I suspect it's something to do with the idea that suffering has to come before glory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that there's there's something at play between these two stories, like because Jesus, it's it's weird that the gospels tell these two stories kind of intertwined. You have Jairus coming, and then it's like a pause in the middle of the story to tell about the woman who's bleeding, and then it picks back up with Jairus and the bad news, and they're happening simultaneously. 
And another thing that's happening simultaneously that I think is kind of fascinating in the way the story's told is the woman who is bleeding, do you remember how long she bled for? Twelve years. Twelve years. And the girl's twelve years old, yeah. The girl's twelve years old. I don't think that's an accident. So huh. what I think I think what's going on here is for the woman who's bleeding, she spent twelve years unable to bring forth life. And every time this girl has a birthday, every time the one the Jairus's daughter has a birthday, it's great news for her, but for the woman who's bleeding, it's another year of childlessness. Mm. It's another year of suffering and pain. And it's like Jesus goes to the first one and he says, you know, you're suffering barrenness. Well, we know all throughout the Bible that the God we serve loves to overcome barrenness. And so he heals her and he bring, you know, he he heals her womb and makes her her capable of of bringing forth life again presumably. Um, but then you go to the woman, to Jairus's daughter, and she's like, she's like for real dead, you know. Right. This would be quite the miracle. And Jesus says, not even death itself stops me. And so you see all throughout this, you know, he's bringing life. He's overthrowing the fallen world that brings death and withering and destruction to everything. And he's, he's, he's overcoming barrenness and he's raising the dead and he's freeing those that the demons have have haunted and infested like you see this everywhere and and with the with the bleeding woman i'm i'm not sure i mentioned this but jesus will take on her curse too you know you remember what what she's going through is because she's bleeding she's made unclean and because she's bleeding she's cast out from community to where she no longer belongs and jesus will then become the one who bleeds so that she can be clean Jesus will be the one who bleeds so that she's never, ever forsaken again, that she's always in community, that she always belongs, but he will be the one who is forsaken. He will be the one that everybody runs away from. He will be the one to whom even God, you know, turns his face away. Mm. And it's like he takes these – Jairus' daughter dies. He takes that too. Why, why, why is he capable of – of granting her resurrection. Well, it's because he is going to conquer death. Yeah. He takes all of these things upon himself. You know, you think of all the heartbreak that's engaged in, in Mark chapter 5, and there's real heartbreak, awful, heartbreaking stories. I can't imagine, you know, being gyrus. You know, if, if someone came to me and said, you know, your daughter, Leah, my nickname for her is Begee, which is weird, but, you know, if somebody came and said she's gone, like, how do you – Enter into the story and imagine that pain and Jesus saying, you know, don't fear, believe. I'm walking with you. Trust. Um, and him not understanding any of that at all. But at the end of the day, Jesus overcomes the power of death and restores this little girl to him. You know, we have that promise. My mom, you know, tonight after dinner, I'm going up to, to read scriptures to her about heaven because I sense that she's coming to the end. I feel like I've said that a lot on the podcast, but – you know, God is keeping her around. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to be reading her scriptures about heaven. Why? Because even when the grave takes her, it will not triumph. No. Because God has overcome death, and I will see her again. Yeah. Don't fear. Only believe. Yeah. You know, every, every suffering that we have, Jesus enters in and says, mine. 
I will relate to that. I will take it from you. And I am all the ways that this world has has fallen and has been overcome with death and disintegration and destruction. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to suffer for my people so that they can have what I have. Mm. I will give them my righteousness. I will give them the power of life and resurrection and healing. And that's, you know, our ultimate fate. All of these miracles are just a foretaste of what glory is going to be for all of us, mm-hmm. where all of our ailments, all of our diseases, all of our struggles and fears and, and things that, you know, make us stumble, addictions, all of it's going to be healed. All yeah. of it. This is, these stories are just a foretaste of what he's going to do. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Well, and that's a good word indeed. And it's uh, what we're going to end on for this week. Uh, Folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you, that uh, you've enjoyed this study where we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the stories Mark tells us to know more about the identity of Jesus, how he is the God who has authority over the winds and the wave, the the spiritual world, life and death itself. Um, That's who he is, and he is a good God. God be praised. if you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater. You can also find our full list of podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will return next week with another in the series on the identity of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.